Welcome to the Marketing Made Inclusive podcast. I am your host, Joanne Boyce. On this podcast, we're going to discuss all things inclusive marketing, from persona creation, campaigns, and even some of the mishaps we see in the media. Tune in and let me know your thoughts on how we can make inclusive marketing the industry standard. Thank you for tuning in to the Marketing Made Inclusive podcast. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Jess Helens about so many things, so many things. It's a very interesting conversation. I went into this conversation thinking we're going to focus on PR and how that can be made inclusive, but we were able to discuss the narratives of fast fashion. We were able to discuss how some campaigns need to do more. And what I really enjoyed about this conversation is that just challenged me on some of my biases and some of my process and data thinking in regards to the creation of campaigns. It's going to be an interesting conversation and I think you're really going to enjoy it. (laughs) I'm so excited for this episode. Oh my goodness. Hi Jess. Hi Joy. For those who don't know, this is going to be a fun one because I already know Jess and we've been talking about inclusive marketing for, I want to say donkey's years, but I don't know how many years is a donkey's year. Since like maybe like 2017, but we probably properly got into it like 2018 because that's when we started to get to know each other really well. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And ask each other awkward and weird conversations. But before all of that, Jess, Jess Helens, who are you? Well, that's a big question. (laughs) In relation to marketing, let's scale it back down. Uh, in relation to marketing, I'm the founder, director, whatever you want to call me, of JDH Communications. And um, it started life as me being a freelancer, working on projects for artists and theatre uh, companies. Then it kind of went into like agency stuff. Like I built a team and I still have that team, but I'm more of a marketing consultant now because mm-hmm. I'm so long in the tooth with it. I've been doing it for like 15 years in loads of different industries. So now I really enjoy doing the strategy side of things and essentially saying to people don't do it like this do it like this or you're doing a really good job with this let's build on that so um yeah that's the kind of marketing side of things and my other business is wild co-working and that mm-hmm. is a virtual community for um self-employed women and non-binary people um and yeah it's just I just have a lovely time basically doing a lot and I was looking back and I'm like I know it's been more than 10 years that you've been doing marketing but when you said 15 I was like oh yeah we I have to add the five years I've known you to the 10 yeah Yeah. and I'm old so Jess you're not old I'm 35 so I am sure there are people listening right now that are going to be like that that is barely barely anything barely a spring chicken yeah I'm a baby really but um, yeah, I have been doing it for a long time. So I've seen a lot of um, trends and changes, especially with language and representation and how the conversation has like evolved. Mm-hmm. So I want to dive in. But before we dive in, what whatever you care to share, what is your perspective on the world? And to give a little context, um, some of our listeners won't be watching us on YouTube, but they'll be listening to us. So my perspective on the world is that I have traveled various countries. I'm a black woman, I'm dyslexic, I'm queer. So the way I interpretate marketing, the way I approach it is based on all of those perspectives. So feel free to share whatever you like. I think that um, as a white woman who's worked in marketing for a long time, my perspective has developed in marketing because when I first started it was very very basic especially with PR and we can get into what PR is in a minute but it was quite it feels very old-fashioned now and I didn't I wasn't really aware of my place in business or how I can affect marketing campaigns and how that has developed is that I'm very aware of um, especially like behind the scenes how I operate in marketing is that I'm doing audits audits for um disabled theatre companies for Mm -hmm. example 
um, understanding that it's my place to listen and then communicate to the right uh, audiences. It's not, I'm basically an interpreter of what companies want to communicate um, and turn it into marketing and PR content. My opinion is not necessarily um, needed in those conversations, mm -hmm. but listening and trying to understand and thinking about how different audiences will um, perceive that communication or how they need to consume that marketing is such it is a science as you know but I think it does come down to a simple kind of equation of someone talking like my client talking understanding the industry as much as I possibly can and listening <laughs> listening is so underrated and people forget to do that and um yeah so I mean, I can't really sum up what my view of the world is, but in context of me being a marketing person mm -hmm. in a world where representation obviously really, really matters. And I want to communicate that to other marketing people, but also people that are working in-house and need help developing a marketing campaign who are aware of them needing to uh, be inclusive and intersectional but not understanding what that actually means and so then they don't do anything at all because mm -hmm. they think well I don't want to get it wrong so I'll just stick to what I know and I guess I try to empower clients as well to be open to making mistakes and learning um, because it's how you recover from those then it what it does is give them the freedom to develop marketing campaigns and know that wherever they start can be adapted I think that's it doesn't have to be perfect straight away and listening to their audiences and understanding how they can be more accessible in the content they're putting out all of that I essentially enable try to enable that conversation to be had between audiences, between internal teams and reassuring them that it's okay if you don't know, you're not, you're not necessarily, nobody starts a career knowing how to be the most accessible and the most intersectional because what does that even mean? It changes every day. Mm -hmm. So I think the, I think the, like I'm rambling now, but I think the key is to just um, give it a go <laughs> and to listen. There's so many things you mentioned, but I want to pick up on something that happened in our very early conversations when we first met. Yeah. I was very heavily focused and mainly because of the people and the clients I was getting on representing and making sure that black women are out there. And you would always ask me questions like, oh, but how are you making accessible? Where, what is the disabled perspective on this? And I would take a moment of pause because I'd realize one, I'd never been asked the question two I wasn't being an advocate in certain situations but for various reasons because clients would come to me with the black centric focus and wanting to reach only black audiences and sitting as an intersection talking about black women they'd be like oh but okay that would confuse them and I remember I came to you with quite a few questions because I was always nervous to even mention disability because I thought that would be I would have to be an expert in it yeah, I was having the problem that I advise clients not to have. It was so funny. But how did you get into speaking and kind of representing disabled community and marketing content, even having clients um, where you had to push back and, and make things accessible? How did you step into that world at first? Uh, I think that because I'd worked, I, I guess my reputation in terms of being a marketing person in the creative industries got me that um, exposure, as in people knew that I had worked in theatre. I was looking for clients in theatre and the arts, let's just say the arts. Um, and then when a brief came out, I was keen to work with loads of different communities. But I think um, I just went for it mm. and thought this is 
I think a, a lot of people would look at a brief uh, from a disabled theatre company. That's very broad, by the way. But anyway, we'll stick with that. Would look at it like you would have and been like, I don't know. I have it. I don't know. <laughs> but <laughs> I think that the danger with being that sometimes the danger of being intersectional means that you kind of think that there's a there's a particular way of marketing. Mm-hmm. Right. And actually, it's just not being a knobhead (laughs) and listening and understanding the barriers, I guess, that um, certain um, organisations are facing. But also, everybody is after the same thing. Exposure. Like, I didn't treat that company any differently apart from listening to what they are currently coming up against and what... um, uh kind of rooms they wanted to get into so like they wanted national coverage just like any other theatre company it didn't make any difference in terms of the way that I worked with the media Mm -hmm. the marketing like the the mechanisms of marketing were all the same it was just understanding um what their objectives were same as I would work with any other client um and they taught me a lot about accessibility and understanding you know even coming down to um explaining how a meeting was going to happen was really important because um bringing people into room from lots of different um areas of the team it can be quite overwhelming for a lot of people you know if they're neurodivergent or even not like it if you don't get marketing going into a meeting about marketing can feel really overwhelming yes. so um i think that being open to um learning lessons meant that i was able to work with lots of different um disabled theater companies let's do that because i was like sure teach me but also this is how we do marketing. It was that simple, of course. Like, It is one of those ones where, and you, you've explained it so well, the mentality initially looking at these things, approaching representation is, oh no, you have to do it different or special. But when we go back to the principles of marketing, the key is, and you've mentioned this, listening, listening and interpreting that for audiences. One of the things that I've got, quoted on before and I said it and I had a moment of pause after I said it because I was just like hold on that sounds wrong but it shouldn't be I think I said at an event disabled people want to have sex drink alcohol and have chocolates but we don't see them in the campaigns and the whole room was just like (gasps) but yes disabled people want to have sex eat chocolate and drink alcohol but why not but they do that's it's not that they want to they do do that <laughs> but, but like I don't see that's that's what I think I'm saying is that sometimes the danger of um intersectional marketing is that there's still a very there's a huge separation and it's like you're just representing um society that's made up of a wonderful array of lots of different people from different backgrounds and different yeah ways of moving through the world the world is extremely ableist and that's the barrier disabled people are only disabled by the way that the world is set up if we were not ableist then they wouldn't be disabled Mm. so i had to pause on that and marketing (laughs) reinforces all of that narrative as well yeah in terms of the world now and we're going to dive into one of our campaigns that we somewhat disagree on. But anywho, in terms of the world yeah. now and how you see campaigns out there. Yeah. What, if any, progress have you seen in some campaigns for any representation? Yeah, I think um, a lot of like fast fashion brands have been representing, um, you know, uh, fat people, disabled people um finally you know and black and brown people of course like they they know that they've got to do a better job and so I think they are working harder I haven't worked with fast fashion brands so I don't know how the working happens but I'm hoping that they speak to and listen to those marginalized groups rather than just picking models off the shelf and being like 
tick, that's a disabled model. Tick, that's a fat model. <laughs> like, are you just representing them in your ad campaigns or are you actually designing clothes for fat people? Are you actually designing clothes for disabled people, amputees? Have you thought about that? Like you might represent them in your lingerie adverts, but how is an amputee, but someone who is an amputee, going to put one of your bras on? Mm-hmm. You've just hit a nail on the head as well, where inclusive marketing doesn't mean include everyone if your product doesn't fit. Like sometimes people forget that. And it's one of my bugbears where they're like, oh yeah, we're going to market to everyone. I'm like, but your website's not accessible. Your product's not accessible. Then leave the people out. I rather you intentionally leave people out and say, we're going to improve the product to serve those people than Mm. what I find is happening now. Either they get chucked in, like you're saying, I'm wondering if you're thinking of one particular brand that does really well on inclusion, but I don't know if their bras are accessible. It's going to hurt my heart to check. I don't want to. (laughs) I I love me. I love me some Savage. I love me some Savage X Fenty. I'm sorry. Rihanna did so well. I know she has areas to improve on, but I don't think any, I don't think any of her bras have any physical accessible that I know of. <laughs> like physically accessible. Like and 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 it is hard. That's what that's why people haven't done this in the past. Mm. Because it's not the path of least resistance. With Savage Venti, like it was one of the first campaigns that a large brand and celebrity who was endorsing it and I don't know if she owns it actually but um Mm. I'm not sure represented more um women than any other lingerie brand potentially did before but I also know smaller businesses that actually do think about their clothes and how people are able to put them on um so yeah it's it's a it's it's one of those isn't it that it's like they've got so much money that they could actually develop products that are physically accessible <laughs> you know mm. but that's the thing like do it just do it so i've i've worked with various companies and i see it mostly in the game sector where mm. the marketing team is completely disconnected from the development team yeah. and they just get given content to market and I feel like maybe some, this is a wider thing that we're touching on here, but at what point does that cycle need to happen? Because if the marketing team's pushing representation, but the product or the service or the thing is not accessible, mm-hmm. yeah, where, where, ideally, I know that we would go back on all these companies and start to do things right, but thinking where we are now, how does that conversation happen? Because I've never worked in a big organization where I've had to push back, I've always been external. So we kind of come with the ideas and the solutions. What's your thoughts on that? I think that um, every company is different. I do think that the marketing department in pretty much every company is always left to get on with stuff and again, be handed a campaign. But then you've got agencies that are brought in again, but then aren't part of the development Um, And that's probably a major issue. But I think that there's also a way of um, avoiding that, which is by um, the education of every single staff member of the company of how to be more accessible in your language, in the way that you email people, in the way that you set up meetings, in the way that you develop products. And that's not just the product being accessible, it's the way that you talk about it, the way that you you bring teams together. If you have got a team of people that understand um, that lots of people within their team (laughs) work differently, then that's going to come through into the product too. But unfortunately, I don't think the fashion industry is anywhere near that point. And I don't think it wants to be. Uh, mm, mm. So there's fast fashion, no, because in itself, it's not affordable or profitable for them to think about that. So I will kind of not necessarily give fast fashion a pass, but until their business model changes, I don't see them becoming fully inclusive. 
um, fun story. There was a fast fashion brand I noticed recently who were advertising how large their leggings stretched and they had straight size models put their arms inside the legging and do kind of like a duck movement to show how far the waistband. I swear to you, the things that I see because of my research it is hilarious. And everyone in the comments was like, you couldn't just hire a plus size model. Oh, they just was like, yeah, it doesn't exist. So we're just going to have our straight size models not do that. Just And but it makes mockery of their sizing. If you're getting a straight size model to be like, look how big it is. What does that say to fat people? Like, oh, I could fit two straight size people in my one leg of my tights what just represent me I want to see what it looks like on someone that is like me things that come out but yeah so I give fast fashion a pass because in the model itself in the business model itself there's no real opportunity for them to develop something mm -hmm. the turnaround of product to market is too fast but there are brands that are putting a lot more thought in that beginning process um and I haven't done a deep dive, but I'm curious to know what Lizzo's Yitty thought process was. And it, it begs this question. So they're going back to Rihanna and now um, Lizzo. Both of them come from marginalized backgrounds somewhat. Rihanna does have pretty privilege. She is thin. So she is a woman of color. Mm -hmm. um, Lizzo is a woman of color, but she's also plus size. Um, so they started brands to fulfill their needs. What are your thoughts on that? Because a lot of my clients, when I talk to them, they're like, oh, you have to be the thing in order to create it for that audience. No, you don't. Because that's, again, where you bring in marginalised groups and listen to them and ask them questions about what they want from a product. What I would say about Yitty is that it's owned by Fabletics. So um, I am unsure of the ethics behind huh. it. Lizzo doesn't own the brand. You are blowing my mind. Lizzo doesn't own, Lizzo reps Yitty like her life. Yeah, well, she's the, um, she is the, um, the woman of the brand, but she doesn't own it. Um, you know that also that drink, what's it called? Prime drink that is, what's that? Oh God, I sound so old now. The guy, the YouTuber that sang with, Anne-Marie <laughs> and he always wears a bandana anyway he's made he is has made in inverted commas prime drink right and it's like uh, rife through schools and they um like kids are paying 10 pounds for a sip of this drink and it's being listed on ebay for 10 grand everyone thinks it's this guy's drink but it's owned by two guys from america like my obsession is looking at especially in the uk i can't really look at american companies that well is looking at who actually owns the company because that has such a huge because then you realize that are they actually creating this product to be inclusive or have they found someone that represents inclusivity which is also great but where does where does the objective come from like are they doing it to make money then you know, and they can make money. So I'm now wondering, does that even matter? Does what matter? If they are creating a product that is inclusive and is servicing individuals who haven't been serviced before. Yeah. And then essentially painting an ambassador of that audience on there. Yeah. Does, does it need to be uh, like, does it matter? No, 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 no. It doesn't matter who owns it, but it, but I think that has an effect on how the product is developed. Okay. So that takes us back to, okay, well, where does the product get developed and where does the marketing go? So if someone starts a company because they want to make um, sustainable trainers because they care about it and they're the owner of the company, every decision that's going to be made probably is going to be right well that you're not doing that ethically and that's why I started this company so make sure you do that ethically if someone has started a company to make money so if it's two blokes that own Fenty for example mm. they are not necessarily have going to have set up the company 
um, to be inclusive. I'm not sure about, I, like I said, I don't know if Rihanna does actually own Fenty or not. I do know that Yitty is, a, is owned by Fabletics. Um, I don't know that. Now I'm question. well, I personally don't think inclusion and ethics are connected. Okay. I think you can be inclusive and unethical in terms of selling products, not the world. Let me just clarify that one. <laughs> in terms of selling products and creating products, because we're in a capitalist society and we're still trying to sell things, you can create an inclusive brand and not be ethical. So what does ethical mean then? So going back to the fast fashion situation, mm-hmm. like paying people, involving people in the process, transparency, all of that cannot happen but they still create an inclusive product somehow. Somehow. (laughs) Yeah. I think also, and by the way, I'm using the word fat because I'm reclaiming that word fat. Mm -hmm. Um, And and lots of people use curvy or, you know, plus size fine. But um, I think that it's really hard to shop as I know that it's hard to shop as a fat tall woman (laughs) in with fast fashion. So I, because it's it's not inclusive like n- not many fast fashion brands are inclusive at all really they don't go up to like size plus 24 no fast fashion goes plus 24 that I know of but they could I feel like mm. they could they, they could. could they could it's if they knew the money was there so this brings back another aspect of the data not being there to justify their capitalist choices to chase the money. If we remove the the including people aspect, if a report came out tomorrow and it said, since COVID, everyone is now a size 16 plus and all these plus size women are spending 80 billion a year on clothing. We know every fast fashion brand is going to shift, but the data is never there to justify that move. So they could, but they're not. And we're, I think the, the reason why this co- conversation that we're having is quite complex and we're not getting to like a, oh yeah, this is why it is, is because it is transitioning. I do think that the it's quite complex at the moment. It's, we've gone from fast fashion is for straight sized people to hang on a minute, n- no what, like a very small percentage of um, the population is straight sized. So we, we, ha- we can make more money by being more inclusive so then that's where my question about being ethical comes from um like did they they wouldn't have done that unless they'd realized like you said that they could make some more money but anyway um I think that's why it's quite hard to like determine what where we are is because there is such a change happening at the moment I think that with climate change um a lot of people are thinking about where they're shopping how much they're buying where they're buying from so that's like another level of okay well how do we move forward and keep everyone included including by the way um cost and affordability it's quite it's very complex there's lots of different levels to this um and we're having clothes as a basic human right so that's also comes down to you know Anyway, yeah, there's so much to discuss. I don't think that we're going to um... solve the world's problems in yeah. one podcast. Of... <laughs> yeah, even <laughs> love to. Um, yeah. When I did that talk at Engine Shed the other day, afterwards, there was a queue of boys, blokes, to me, they're boys because I'm 35 and they're 19, a uh, queue of blokes afterwards waiting to speak to me. And every single one of those questions that they had was, about how they can be a better ally and how they can um, bring more women into their courses, how they can work better with women in the workplace. And I was like, I've never experienced this before. I've never ever um, encountered someone that isn't from a marginalized group asking how they can be better as a white man. (laughs) Um, And so I think like generationally, hopefully they've realized that they need to do better and so will you give me a a fab segue there there was a study that came out in america that said it would take about 71 years Mm. to close the race hiring gap 
within marketing agencies. Right. And a lot of the times I am brought into agencies to be that voice and to to be the voice of black people or women or so forth. And I hear the owners of these agencies, the, the white men say that, yeah, we can't say this, we can't do that. From those conversations you had with those young men, what, what advice would you give agency owners who happen to be most likely middle-aged white men yeah. into, into, yeah, what advice would you give them to, to help make the movement? I think that, um, and I have had this conversation uh, with those men who sit as CEOs and want to do better, in inverted commas. And I don't doubt that a lot of them do want to do better, but what they like every single time, and I'm talking like blokes that are my age and older, every single time I've questioned their marketing activity or the fact that every event they've put on has, like I'm talking about uh, agencies that put on like business events with panels that are full of men. Every time I've had that conversation, they say, yeah, we need to do better. And so I say, right, okay, well, how do you want to do better? They've got no idea, but they know they've they've done something wrong. Not wrong, but they're not doing as well as they could be in terms of like representation within their teams or their events. And so I'm like, okay, well, let's have a conversation. Every single time they don't follow it up because they kind of feel like they've done the thing of like admitting that they could do better but they don't then go into, right, okay, well, let's start thinking about what our outreach looks like. Like, who are we wanting to bring people into our team because we want to properly represent and understand a marginalised group? Or is it that we are worried we look too white and male? Those are two very different things. Mm. And I think that you can tell when an agency fully wants to create a team that means that they can whereas when I did that talk at Engine Shed the other day um and they really respect what they have to say as opposed to well we've got um a black guy working on this urban project oh gosh whenever (laughs) I see that on a brief it just makes me itch yeah it's awful like it it, it, the amount of times that I've heard people say that and they're being genuine and I'm like what you what I don't I haven't heard it for a while to be fair but there's been so many times that people have said that to me in the past what is and feel free to to pick whatever level the most shocking thing you've heard from agency owners or people wanting to they know they need to do better Oh God, I've heard some really, really shocking things. And I've been personally treated horrifically by men at work. The most shocking thing that I've heard someone say, uh, I was working, actually, there is one thing. I was working with a theatre company um, in Bristol. And at the time, Bristol Vic were doing a really, really great uh, programme of events. And they've carried on, actually that was a real shift from them um, doing very, they had very white, uh, non-disabled, all men casts in all of their own productions, right? For a long time, generally. Then there was a shift and they started bringing in lots of theatre producers from lots of different areas across the UK, from different backgrounds, lots of, black and brown and disabled actors and actresses and there was a real shift happening and it was really great to see I was working with a smaller theatre company at the time where that was that shift was happening with Bristolovic and I said to them because they're arts council funded and so arts council want to understand how they develop their audience and who they're representing in their um, shows and you know all the usual stuff that's been there for years and years and years Mm-hmm. And the guy that was running the theatre company said, I don't want to just like, um, oh God, I can't even bring myself to say it. I don't want to just bring in a load of black people into our productions just because, like Bristol Vic have done, mm. just, because, just to tick a box. And I get that. But then he followed it up with, 
Um, well, we've managed to, I can't even say it, we've managed to get Arts Council funding for our next production um, by bringing in um, this guy that is, um, that has come to the UK as a refugee, so that will get us the funding. <sighs> and I was like, do you know what, I'm not working with you anymore. Because I was doing a day of their marketing strategy, kind of talking to them about like, what do you, what are your objectives? Like, oh, we want to reach as many people as we can. Well, you're not going to in, with that attitude. You're mm. going to keep your own bubble. And now I don't want anything to do with you. So you're also going to exclude yourself from a lot of groups. Um, it, it's just, it, I think that if a lot of people that support certain brands and organizations that they think are doing better were actually sat in a boardroom with the people making decisions, they'd realize that there's a lot of change that still needs to happen. Systemic change needs, there's every time I step out of my like wild bubble, for example, with women and non-binary people in business, and I step out of that into another business arena, you know, into um, another networking event or something, and I encounter people that don't share my views on business. Mm. I'm like, shit, there's so much work to be done still. And we talk about it a lot, don't we? Yeah, because you know? I know I've shared to you, I will come back from one of my speaking events and I'll be like, you'll never guess what I got told on this trip. Um, mine are, they're interesting scenarios because I'm in a position where I can't necessarily walk away because I literally just come off stage talking to people. Um, it's always this moment where I have to stand there and be like, am I going to address this thing you just said? Or am I going to just carry on at this whole networking event? Mm -hmm. The one that comes to mind is I did my inclusive marketing talk, talking about, you know, how agencies should implement things in their process or push back with clients and, you know, have different versions of stock photos, typical things, the standard things I've been saying for the past five years. Mm -hmm. Someone comes up to me at the end and they were like, yeah, we tried it with one client. And then the client said that black people don't buy luxury things. So mm -hmm. yeah, what, how, how do we, why, why would we push back? How would we push back? We would risk losing the client. And this is a question they asked me in front of a whole bunch of people. I'm just there like, there were so many layers <laughs> of ridiculousness, ridiculousness on it. But that was the one thing, oh, we don't want to risk losing the client. So why would we push back on something racist? They said, that's all I heard. And I'm just like, okay why do you want to work with a racist client <laughs> like straight away that you're just enabling that I <laughs> I'm sorry that that's been but yeah their kind of aspect was we tried it once yeah <laughs> and it was just too risky it was just too much the client was just like no and there's parts of me that understand it but there's, part, but there's parts of me that are like there's ways to put things in processes. There's ways to implement things that don't make it. I feel like everyone that's approaching inclusive marketing feels like it needs to be this hard, abrupt stop of everything they're doing. And it's like, no, you could just have better stock for like, just, yeah. <laughs> or you could just, you know, uh, explain your 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 alt text better. There's little things you can do in your day to day. Yeah. Um, and I do wonder whenever I speak to those. CEOs and directors of agencies, they feel that because they've had a conversation with a woman, that that is all the work they need to do. Exactly. It's the, like, that's exactly my experience is that they've kind of gone, oh yeah, I've entertained that conversation. I'm not going to email her back now. I don't need to. Um, <sighs> again, it's the work of like women, especially um, black and well, women of color that take that on their shoulders again like we are the ones that want change the marginalized groups want change quite often go into marketing for that reason like you and I have created businesses because we want to see change and again we're doing the work they need to do the work I need to do the work like as a white woman there's a lot of work that I need to do but I think that certain men that I've worked with would say that like you said but wouldn't actually know where to start to do the work because it's quite scary you know like it can be scary to be like admit that they're sexist or racist or you know there's a lot of stuff that they've got to unlearn 
that I'm aware of there's so much that I have to unlearn as a white woman that's like it's hard work but it's not meant it's not meant to be easy either do you know what I mean but because of that no one does it Mm -hmm. and they try to make it seem that it doesn't impact the work and the content that they're producing but it does yeah and that's the disconnect that there's like oh no it's fine or it's like no you or every campaign you've put out has been male-centric because that's the only perspective yeah. you've you've thought of so it's impacting the content creator and it's limiting it in so many ways but speaking on content yes <laughs> watch the advert now yes that's what I was gonna <laughs> say so we're going to for those listening oh when my mouse starts working we're going to watch the body form womb stories advert and then share our thoughts on it <laughs> let me get this up we don't agree <laughs> on a little tiny yeah, me on a little bit but yeah we're gonna watch the body form womb stories which is a campaign that came out i believe in 2018 and yeah we've spoken about it before on a podcast but if you want to watch it yourself and you're listening to it the link for it will be in the show notes it's just so good it is and it makes me emotional like every time I see it and I remember seeing it for the first time and I was like oh my god there's a potential for people that don't understand what it's like to have a period that's gonna understand what it's like to have a period um but even and I don't I mean, I'll let you get into it, but that was not that long ago. And already, like I said to you the other day, there's, they could update that now. They could, but I, I just feel like it represents such a why. I don't know how, because it's three minutes, because we also got to put some realistic aspects on this. There needs to be enough storyline and intersectionality within those storylines, but it also needs to fit into three minutes and it can't be too many clips to complicate the viewer so I'm see I'm already I'm already got my defenses off on it but they have they shown first off I always clock the main ones so there was definitely representation of different ages we had representation of sexualities we had a queer couple and a straight couple literally the straight couple having sex in the age one we had a woman going through menopause and a young woman getting her period for the first time different skin tones as well it wasn't a woman it, it ranged from obviously there were white women but there was a dark skinned black guy so there was a spectrum of skin tones as well two things i didn't spot and i know you would mention this i didn't spot representation of any physical disability and I didn't spot representation of any trans men. Mm-hmm. However, I don't know where they could have put it. I think that's an excuse, Joy. I think that's an excuse <sighs> that a lot of men on boards make a lot. <laughs> one, why does it have to just be one three minute ad? I'm not saying that there could be multiple ads, but I'm saying within that ad in itself, they try to hit as many as they could in that ad in itself. Yes, there could be a series. I'm not, I'm not disputing that. If when it comes to series, you can do everything. But where in that ad in itself was there room for another storyline? I don't think that's the question that we should be asking because yeah, I can see lots of different places where trans men could be represented. And so that straight couple that were having sex, why couldn't the woman be disabled, physically, visibly disabled? Okay. It couldn't be, why couldn't that man be a trans man? Okay, uh, okay. There's there's lots of different places. Also, I think that three minutes, fine, but make three three-minute ads. Um, Aldi, for Christmas, have about a thousand different ads. I do think that lots of period uh, brands um, are starting to represent trans men anybody with a womb that's mm-hmm. all it is it's that simple anybody with a womb if you're advertising period products um so that's what I mean like I, I I think all I'm saying is that now they could update it and it could be so powerful as it was when it first came out I think you know as um women who identify as women 
female. We were like, finally, a real life period advert that shows blood for God's sake, rather than that blue liquid. The bar is so low. And I think that's probably (laughs) where we're having it. From uh, our past episodes and the research we've done, I've seen where the bar was before I was even born. Like the bar wasn't even on earth. It was in another planet. It was so low. So I think Mm. having that ad came out in, well, based on YouTube, came out in 2020. From where the bar was, there were literal ads in newspapers of women with their legs open, tampon hanging out, and they're like, a fish on the end of it. I know progress happens in different stages, but I feel like that, was such a good timestamp and a lot of other brands are now adopting the actually showing pain and showing red blood and not blue blood mm. I f- yes body form could do another one there could be and it's fat is called womb stories mm-hmm. I don't know if there were other stories but in that ad itself I hear you on the representation of physical amputee visibly visibly disabled but yeah I'm, I'm one I, I feel like and maybe it's because of my bias, I feel that a trans man story of the period needs its own solo campaign before it can get integrated into something like this. <gasps> Why? Because Why? The, the market, the market's not there. Like, so one of the campaigns I use often in my talks is the Gillette ad. Hmm. And that came out in 2018. It's an ad of a trans man being taught to shave by his father and they're both black. And I used that ad and now I look back at it and I'm just like, at the time I was in love with this. I was like, this is a representation. But now I look at it and I'm just like, that was a needed step to shift the conversation to just have trans men in campaigns. In terms of the public's perception, I'm not talking about us as Marxists and what we can create. I'm talking about how we can shift the narrative of the people consuming this content. But trans men consume the content and the products. So why not include them in... The adverts begin with why separate it initially I think it could be part of a series I think given the spotlight for one the individuals who consume the content to feel seen and heard and then to feel lack of a better word normalized because that ad body forms ad essentially is normalizing what has been the outskirts or the opposite to period campaigns up until now mm-hmm because up until that ad and recent ads and, and campaigns around periods, it's been wearing white dresses, frolicking. That has been a normalization. Yeah. And as far as, not that they're the best demographic for it, as far as cis straight men know what periods are, that has been their awareness. And then everybody else who's had a period has felt to been made to feel they are not normal because... Mm-hmm. what is being so I think there needs to then in terms of shifting the narrative because the other aspect if it is just chucked into a story like that it can come across as tokenistic why because it's not given it's time to shift it's um, personal opinion I feel like you have to have spotlight saturation then normalization when it comes to representation of communities that have been marginalized in media so spotlight and I feel like Spotlight has been happening far too long. Spotlight is like when they want to do a campaign of a black woman, they use Oprah. Everyone uses Oprah. And it's just like, huh. Then saturation would be, okay, let's use Oprah, Naomi. Let's use Serena. Let's use all these people. Mm. And then normalization is that you don't even need to use a famous person. You can just use a random black woman on the street in a campaign and it will still be fine. I feel like that is the journey. But why do you think the journey is needed? Why did I, it's my faith in humanity is very little. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe we're not giving them enough credit because what that is assuming is that society isn't made up of trans men, isn't made up of disabled people, isn't made up of lots of different minority groups or oppressed groups. I'm not saying, I don't feel that is the case. I feel on that journey of spotlight saturation and normalization it's giving for me those communities an opportunity to sit and feel like they're being seen because if you look at the example I just had Oprah's impact even though it was mainly just her for a very long time was vast like a lot of people like oh my gosh I could be Oprah 
And now we're at the stage where black women are saying, I could be anything. I, it might be, I'm looking at it because that is the experience I've lived and I'm, I'm limited by that. It might be that the generations coming up don't need that. They're already in the normalization phase and everyone else is catching up. Yeah, I would agree with that. That's my point, I think. Okay. Is that I think if we continue to use those mechanisms and formulas to market, then it's not going to change. And I think disrupting that formula is important to represent people that have periods, including trans men. There's what who is saying, no, you can't represent everyone who has a period in a period ad. Lots of ads um, for period products are trans men in them now. So that's what I'm saying is that when that came out, I was like, my God, this is amazing. And now, and at the time I I was the same, I had the kind of same opinion as you, I suppose. I didn't even really think about it because that's because I am not a trans man and I hadn't opened my mind to that. But now that I've done my um, kind of education side of things and we've moved on even the last few years like the last few years with the pandemic there's so much change that's happened mm-hmm. in lots of different areas but now that's I, I mean uh, yeah it, I wouldn't change that advert because I don't think that's the point that I'm making the point is it's that they've done that now and they can do an update so they've spotlighted and I can't remember what the next stage is that you said saturation so then now like otherwise they're just going to stay in the same place that they were in 2020 I think that's what I'm trying to for me is <laughs> when a brand skips the other two stages and goes to normalization in my gut if they didn't start like that it feels weird I don't know why I don't know if it's because we I've seen so many brands mess up when they try to make it, oh yeah, we just do this. Whatever the, the representation is, it's just like, Ugh. whereas maybe it's a separation as well. Cause I guess the historic brands are the ones that make me nervous when they skip and they go into normalizing mm. people they have not represented for millennia. Right. I'm just like, Ugh. you haven't done the work to, the, to appreciate the people that you're now trying to normalize. It feels weird. And I'm speaking as a consumer here, definitely more than a marketer Mm. because going back to Fenty Mm -hmm. Fenty's trying to stay in that normalization phase they're not even trying to do I can't think of one Fenty campaign that had a spotlight in it it was always saturation and normalization right yeah yeah it's an interesting point I think that as a marketing as marketing people our bias uh, we're always going to um try our hardest to have empathy but ultimately what comes down that's why it's important to listen to different groups Mm. and I think period products are so specific it's not like a brand it's very easy to represent who has periods that's interesting oh so I have a I'm going to be going to do a podcast episode um soon Mm -hmm. with someone who's developing a period cup oh yeah and you say that but the conversations, even around the language and the wording, there isn't a consensus of how people who have periods want to be referred to. Right. And then what's that based on? Their research. So they, they're building the product. So they've had to speak to a white and they've made effort to make sure they speak to people who have periods in the broadest sense of the term. Mm. Um, and it's interesting because I feel like obviously we live in the age of the Internet. Language is evolving so quickly mm. that I, I don't even feel like we're, we're there yet. It's something that's happened from the beginning of time because we've always been around creating, producing, having periods. I feel like the language isn't there yet. I, I think that's the trap that we fall into is that we are getting to a place where language one day is going to be inclusive. The point is, is that it's ever evolving. And so being open to learning how it evolves is key. I think that if we're going, if we, if that's what we're doing is that we're aiming to get to a, a time in history where everyone is represented really, really well and we've nailed the language, that's not right. That's the trap we've fallen into before. That's how brands don't evolve. That's how brands get stuck in the past. 
I think that's my point that I'm making about the video really is that great they did really really great but now don't stop at that keep mm. going and I think that's where you stay stagnant uh, a company stays stagnant by not understanding that language changes pretty much every day and that um, lots of different people um, have an opinion of how they would want someone to talk to them through an ad campaign, for example. Mm. And it could be, if you want to simplify it, which is hard to do, but in marketing, we kind of have to sometimes. Um, if you're looking, if you're asking one particular group of people, so if you wanted to do like a, an umbrella term of disabled people, then within that, there's lots of different complexities and, uh, you know, two wheelchair users would say different ways of uh, so it would say different things in terms of how they want to be communicated to about wheelchairs for example and everyone that has periods will have a different way of how they want to consume a, a, an advert mm. and the language I, this is this is I think what um like advertising agencies will, must um struggle with or find challenges with is that they could be working on a campaign for six months and then by the end of that six months it could be tone deaf yeah. um, and I think during 2020 through the kind of Black Lives Matter awakening is a really good example of that so lots of brands uh, their campaigns landed during that period and were perceived as tone deaf and I think that what we've got to consider is that they were working on the campaign six, 12 months before that, and it was scheduled to land and everything had progressed a million miles an hour as it should have done. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's when you have to have people on teams of marketing teams, advertising teams that kind of go, hang on a minute, is this the right thing that's going out at the right time? Or can we adapt the language? Can we adapt representation within our imagery? Like you said, there's simple things that can be done like stock images using the right ones for it to land. Because I think, again, consumers don't understand quite a lot of the time that advert advertising and copywriting is done months and months, maybe even years ahead of it landing, especially for fashion or products has been in the making for years um and so that's where the marketing teams need to be agile they need to be open to learning lessons and applying those lessons in everything that they do and that's ultimately where a, a team or a company needs to educate and bring in the right people to educate so this is a heavily biased question on my end <laughs> but <Love it. laughs> Where do you see technology playing a part in that? Because, well, if only we all had something called include. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, though, what you're developing could be, well, is going to be that change that we need in the marketing industry, because that allows you to be to to access data, but also potentially content eventually because that means that you're giving you're being given the um understanding that your content isn't uh diverse enough with one of a better kind of term because that's not just the only thing that include does but um <laughs> just i'm appreciating this person <laughs> <laughs> it's like as soon as you said i was like people need to keep up to date and i'm like yep yep so technology but yeah. honestly Obviously, we're building a platform to help people identify those things in the time frame that we are at, because one of the things that has happened, I've gone in and I've trained clients, they've created inclusive language documents, but something happens in the world, documents yeah. out of date. Yeah. And it's keeping up to date with that and keeping on top of it. And no one person, and I always advocate for this, I'm, I'm slight tangent. I hear you and I hear other people within the industry talking about diverse teams but I want a, a but and because yes, the teams need to be diverse, but and we cannot wait till they are. Agreed. That's where my education kind of point comes in. That the teams need to educate themselves 
until we have diverse teams mm. and listen to sorry I interrupted you carry on no that 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 was it it was we cannot wait until they are and they may some teams may never get there depending on country location various no one team is going to represent a hundred percent of their target audience yeah yeah and that's where I see and I advocate for technology stepping in in an ethical way ironically because I denounced ethics in marketing a couple of minutes ago (laughs) in an ethical way to not necessarily create and put together these campaigns but to advise the teams on what the audience and the narrative and the perception of a campaign is going to be once it lands Mm. but outside of our thank you for the plug but outside (laughs) of our tech have you used any of the AIs coming up and now where it's like copywriting AIs and image creating AIs no I haven't (sighs) and you always introduce me slash terrify me um with new tech that I'm like oh my god we may as well just plug into people's brains which we essentially have and then I'm like I can't deal with it and I go around this circle of like no I'm not doing it anymore to actually to like systemic change can happen with the help of technology which of course is your viewpoint as well and um yeah I haven't used it but they're not from not wanting to I think again um the reason I haven't is because I'm not educated and haven't thought of doing that. And that's uh, one of the main issues, if you know what I mean. Like I also not working on marketing campaigns a huge amount anymore, but um, that's not an excuse. I think uh, my example is kind of shows you how easily it can happen where I want to um, and I'm very aware of how marketing can progress but I still need to educate myself and I'm open to being wrong in my marketing strategies for sure you know like a lot of what I do is based on how I've done it before that's worked Mm. which we all do we all do not every single thing that we're working on is brand new because we've learned how things work and if it works well then we'll keep doing it until it doesn't and Mm -hmm. so um being open to being wrong is is that's where the change comes in in my opinion so could I say in the same way we are asking individuals to open up their minds I can ask you to be more techie you always ask me to be more techie joy and for that I'm grateful (laughs) I am genuinely like I think that's I think our example of how our kind of professional relationship works is from how you highlighted it before in terms of when I was like hang on a minute have you thought about non-disabled people in your what you're creating and you were like okay thanks (laughs) and then the same with tech you're like just come on now this is how you can use tech why are you not doing it like this and I'm like ah all right (laughs) (laughs) it's about finding those people that keep you accountable and that's why obviously having the most diverse team that you can helps Mm. but also diversity doesn't mean that the work's going to be good just because you've got a disabled person on your team doesn't mean that disabled people are going to be represented in campaigns that was a better thing a black woman on your team doesn't mean that all of a sudden you're going to be creating um campaigns that represent black women so it's not just about representation Sorry, I chuckle I chuckle because um a lot of a lot of organizations and teams think that yeah once we get that it's all good it's like your systems and processes and the people yeah. who say yes or no to the campaign are still the same people therefore your campaigns are still gonna be crap I'm gonna say crap but I really mean offensive but yeah <laughs> yeah okay this has been an amazing conversation we have gone all around the world twice over but I want to know about your inspiration in what you're doing now what is inspiring me is women around the world especially women in Iran and um and I want to talk about that as much as I possibly can because they need as much time and 
space to be heard around the world. And for me, that represents how important it is that women need to be seen and heard. And in my lane, I'm able to help women be seen and heard through my community of women and non-binary people in business through WILD. Where can people find out about you and WILD? <laughs> people can find out about WILD uh, on our website, wildcoworking.com um, and also social media. But uh, yeah, the website is a good place to start. Well, we'll <laughs> add all the links to the show notes. I am going to wrap up and this has been an amazing conversation with Jess Helens founder of Wild Coworking and JDH Communications. We have talked everything around the world and I would love to hear your thoughts. So please hashtag Marketing Made Inclusive. You can find me everywhere on the internet with at Joanne Boyce and look forward to speaking with you again on the Marketing Made Inclusive podcast. Thank you. <laughs>